welcome back and thanks for tuning in to Oil & Gas Onshore, where I am on a relentless pursuit to bring value, unity, and information to the energy industry one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and remember that even this very device you're listening on requires some form of hydrocarbon. This episode is brought to you by our new sponsor for the Oil & Gas Onshore podcast. A big shout out to Technip FMC, a company who truly represents the future of the oil and gas industry. Hey everyone, look, not only do you get awesome weekly content by listening, now you've got a chance to win some serious swag brought to you by Technip FMC. Each week, one lucky listener will win a bundle of gear, which includes everything I'm about to list. Seriously, everything. An audio duffel bag, a Yeti tumbler, an executive power bank power charger, a Columbia neck gator, and a set of Ace Pods 2.0, which are the true wireless Bluetooth earbuds. All you got to do is click the link in the show notes and enter your information to win. Simple. Now go get your swag on. Welcome to another episode. I'm here in Zoomland with my buddy, my old friend, the myth, the legend. Anyone who knows him knows he's a character. Chad Hayden, CEO of Galatea Technologies and founder of Filter Breeze. And we'll get into that because I think it's a cool story, Chad. Chad spent the last 15 years in oil and gas focusing on everything from field operations, software development, project management, technical engineering, sales, account management, market analysis, and product development. Chad, we go back a good ways. We met back in 09 at SAIT, which is in Calgary. It's a tech school for everyone who doesn't know anything about north of the U.S. There's a few of us actually who had previous oilfield experience prior to going back to school. And I think that's what really naturally gravitated us towards each other and, you know, the team and sort of the camaraderie that we built with a few of us. You know, other guys like, you know, we had Brad Doyle, we had Jeff Kidd. You know, and a good, you know, a good group of guys that really stuck together. And I mean, I consider you a good friend and we've kept in touch ever since. But a lot has changed since the old days of 2009 state, has it not, buddy? Man, I'm glad a lot has changed because, man, were those were those some different days for us, eh? Mm-hmm. But it's funny because I remember getting out of school. Well, we met, I think it may have been 07. And then our program, you know, we graduated in 09. And I remember delivering furniture after high school or after finishing up school. And, you know, you and I kept in touch. You were working at CES. And one day you just basically hit me up. I remember being in in a furniture van delivering furniture. And you called me and said, go check, send me your resume. CES is hiring. The oil field's in the shitter, but these guys are doing good things. We're growing and they need someone with field experience, someone who did well in school, blah, blah, blah. And I'm pretty sure I had that thing, you know, sent to you before you even could finish the conversation. But I really do appreciate that. And you've been a pivotal part of my career because without that, I don't know where I'd have been. So from the bottom of my heart, man, I appreciate you making that call to me that one day because I think I got hired the next day and the rest is history. I thought they were trying to replace me. So, <laughs> right? <laughs> no, in all seriousness, we were at CES. We were grinding out a bunch of things for the guys helping the sales team. And they said, Chad, you're doing a great job. Is there anybody else out there like you? And, you know, I called everybody else in the class. You were last on the list. (laughs) I figured I was. I was the only one stupid (laughs) enough to answer the phone when you called them. You made it. And it's, you know, we had so much fun working at CES. We learned so much. We worked for some incredible entrepreneurs that taught us a lot. And I owe a lot of my success to those guys and those kind of early days where we learned how to hustle. Yep. No, we, we sure did our fair amount of hustling. And then we're going to dive into it. But before we keep going, I want to highlight some fascinating technology provided by our sponsor, Technip FMC. Their new and integrated iComplete ecosystem is digitally enabled and delivers efficiency benefits by dramatically reducing components and connections while simultaneously providing real-time data to operators about the well-pad operations. Technip FMC is continuing to push the limits in order to achieve full frack automation. To discover more about the benefits of iComplete, click the link in the show notes or check them out on LinkedIn. So Chad, you know, we've got a lot to talk about, but I'm really curious. You are such a creative thinker. You're always looking around the corner. How are you innovating this year? And then whether that's business, marketing, technology, personal branding, like what are you doing this year, 2021 coming out of COVID? That's like innovation, looking around the corner, coming what's next. How are you preparing for that right now? My whole life has been trying to see the future and trying to form these theses over time about what I think that's going to look like in Canada. You know, Wayne Gretzky, big hockey idol, always skated to where the puck was going. So really trying to trying to spend time thinking 
reading, connecting with mentors, getting their opinion. Guys that have been through this, oil and gas is cyclical. We've gone through this a bunch of times and there's some hands out there that understand it. And the last couple of times it crashed, they wrote down their notes. So I'm trying to find their notes and figure out what does this look like as we come out of this and how we can position our companies to be strong and, and resilient. What does that look like now, especially over the last few years, you've seen a lot of folks jump into the, you know, the digitalization, the analytics, the, you know, digitalize the oil field. How does that, and I mean, we'll talk about Galatea Technologies and get a little more granular on that, but just in general, I mean, how do you really set yourselves apart right now in, a, in an oil field that in the short run is maybe shrinking a little bit? And by that, I mean, headcount, production, resistance, politically, whatever that looks like, but I mean, how do you just like kind of step aside and, and look at everything at a 30,000 foot view and say, ah, that's where I am and that's where I need to be. But how do you differentiate yourself now? Because I find like that's such a hard part. And then, and, you know, I have so many people that I know down here that are that are in the technology space. It's a tough grind, man. I, I couldn't. I mean, especially now coming out of COVID. I mean, how, how do you do that or what, what's kind of the mindset you have going into that process? I really focus on the jobs to be done. If you have enough calls with clients and you have enough conversations, you ask questions like what keeps you up at night, they come back and say, this keeps me up at night. And that's a job to be done. If you can solve that job and ask them how much they'll pay you to solve that job, you can build a business around that. You know, everything we've done for years and years and years, inefficiency has really drove me nuts. There's got to be a better way to do it. I like technology. I like taking technology from other industries and bringing them into, into oil and gas and it's, it's really finding those opportunities, understanding the job to be done, having enough conversations with potential clients to say, if I solve this or do this job, will you pay me? And then building a business around it and, and getting hyper-focused on creating these, these solutions to help operators. Because I think it's a conversation around energy. When we look at what happened at COVID, during COVID, we took a third of the cars off the street and we took 95% of the airplanes out of the air. Yeah. We only reduced oil consumption by 20%. Let that sink in. If you really think about that, that's a, it's an incredible number. And we're going to need energy, sustained energy for a long period of time. And as an industry, I think we all need to get together and be conscious of, of how does that, that energy get into our homes, get into our cars, and create a resilient industry supported with ESG data and a, and a great narrative. And how can we bring the world into this first class that in North America, we're just so lucky to be able to live in and, and not think about? Yeah, no. And what I like about that is, is really, like you said, coming together. And I think actually I was on a podcast yesterday with Yusuf Chaudhry, who does a podcast oil money with digital wildcatters. And I was telling him, you know, it's interesting because you have this resistance and you have these, these camps now, and especially with the new administration, the, in, the intent is awesome. I mean, I don't think you could walk into anyone's office, whether oil and gas, renewables, whatever, and say, do you want to damage the environment? No, obviously we want to leave things in a just as good, if not better place for our gen next generations to come. But to me, it's not a conversation of this or that. It's a combination of this and that. It's, it's how do we combine everything? How do we provide good base load electricity? How do we provide good peak load electricity? You know, affordable, resilient, sustainable. I think, again, it's just we all have to come together in this in this divide that's been created over so long. It's just been challenging. You know, like you said, it's as an energy industry, how do we make things happen? How do we, how do we come together and have conversations with people that are outside of our bubble. And I think that's the biggest challenge is like, how do we have good conversations and have an open mind enough to really seek out different perspective? I have a good friend of mine, Danny Spletstosser, who's works for one of the biggest wind energy companies in the world. He lives in Denver. He's pro natural gas. Like he doesn't want to electrify everything in the next two years. And he's an educated individual who understands energy markets who really can see the big picture. And it's like, hey, let's come together, leverage each other's technology, leverage each other's you know, experience. And again, like let's become energy companies versus you know, X company or Y company. And, and so it's, it, again, it's just a cool conversation. And you know, anyone out there who's on the renewable space, I would love, I like connecting with anyone that's involved with energy, period. It does not matter. And at the end of the day, like you said, like the, you know, you take all that demand off the streets and you're still left with only a 20% reduction, that tells you that there's still a lot of hydrocarbons being used for other things. So 
Anyway, interesting conversation, but I'm glad you brought that up because it's something that happens every day. And, you know, there's a lot of things happening where people are, you know, getting frustrated and mad and crazy things are happening. But the more conversations that we can have around this type of stuff, I think is important. And it's all about diversity too, Justin. When I look at putting people on my board to help give me guidance and drive the direction of my company, I went out initially and looked for guys that thought like me and looked like me. And that's the wrong way to do it. What you want is diversity of opinion. People that can challenge your assumptions and challenge your the way of thinking and say, hey, listen, you know, a lot of the things that are foundational to the way you run your business need opinions from all over the place. And that's especially important in energy. We need to bring more diversity into the conversation and work together to come up with a solution. There's a really good book by Michio Kaku. I know you love reading. It's called Transforming Humanity. And we're so short-sighted on energy. He takes you all the way out to a Dyson sphere. Think of it like a solar panel that encapsulates the earth to capture and harness all of this energy. So it's it's wild how he walks you through humanity from from where it began to where it's going in the future. It's, It's an incredible read. If you're interested in the energy conversation, highly recommend it. Awesome. We'll put the link in the show notes. That way it's a quick click to Amazon for folks, but I uh, appreciate the recommendation. Switch gears here a little bit. I see, you know, so we're on Zoom and for, for the audience out there, Chad is sitting in beautiful downtown Calgary. It looks like the sun's shining. How is Canada right now? Very macro level. I mean, I know you guys are on lockdown. You've got a handful of rigs drilling. What's kind of the pulse and, and what's, you know, what's happening right now in downtown Calgary? You know, Calgary is, is its own unique animal. We had pipeline restrictions, which caused our companies in Canada to manage their balance sheets a little bit better than our counterparts in the U.S. So having that restriction on exports made our companies actually pay down their debt, pay dividends, all those sorts of things. So we've been lucky. You know, our companies are relatively resilient. We're in a really good shape right now. And, you know, that whole downturn in the last few years, we learned to run our businesses on $60 oil. So we're good at this. We understand it. We've got teams in place. We're really focused on OPEX. We're really focused on ESG. We're really focused on telling that that narrative about how our jurisdiction of Canada and Alberta specifically is just environmental leaders. And we put a lot of regulation in place to really support that. So I'm optimistic as capital comes into the market to support energy, oil, natural gas, it's going to come to Canada. Yep. No, I've actually heard, you know, there's a lot of optimism around it. And there's a gentleman by the name of Josh Young, who I've got to know through some contacts. He's been on our Flowline podcast with AES Drilling Fluids. Anyway, he writes for Seeking Alpha and, and just an overall, just an intelligent dude. And I have nothing but the utmost respect for him. He puts out some serious good content. He runs a company here in Houston called Bison. Uh, I think it's Bison Investments or Bison something anyway. But he's very bullish on Canadian oil and gas. I know a lot of the stuff that he focuses on is up there. It'd be silly of me to try and you know explain why just because his level of business is, is far over my head. But Again, it's interesting to hear that Canada does have potential. I mean, you guys are sitting on some serious reserves. I think it's just, you know, hopefully the pendulum will swing a little bit. As of today, I was just looking it up. You guys have 163 rigs drilling because we're right now, we're just coming out of winter, but winter's, you know, typically blow and go up there. And then you're going to be running into breakup. But I mean, what does rig count at 163? Is that pretty solid or what do you, what is it normally during the winter time? Well, I, I always look at look at people trying to hire. It's really hard to hire rig hands right now. I think we were limited on rig count just because we couldn't find people to actually staff these rigs. We're into breakup already. One of the counties, one of our clients that we deal with had road bands come in on March 1st. Mm-hmm. So in Canada, I was talking about spring breakup. We have this season in spring where the frost comes out of the ground, all the roads get soft. So we have to manage our logistics accordingly. So trucks run from 10 a.m. till 10 p.m. when the ground is cold, or we have reduced amount of volume that we can haul on trucks. And I think Canada is, you remember this, Justin, you worked on the rigs, you were a roughneck, it's cold. I remember nights where it was minus 50 Celsius, where you had wet green kings on, you touched anything metal, and they were stuck there for until springtime, right? Oh yeah, it gets it's so it's funny telling how cold it was. I was talking to someone here, I forget who, but they'd never work in any serious conditions like that. And I said, Yeah, I remember, you know, like having to use the restroom and it would freeze before it hit the ground. And they actually believed me. They're like, Yeah, I, I could see it that minus because I think I was told it was minus 60 with a wind chill. And of course, that's 
almost impossible <laughs> for us to be able to go to the restroom outside and it freeze before it hits the ground. However, it's believable. Those conditions are seriously harsh. But, you know, so yeah, hopefully, like I said, I don't know the political landscape right now. I know Trudeau is certainly an advocate of renewable energy. And, you know, again, intent is great. But at the end of the day, it's about energy security and, and you know, utilizing resources in the safest and environmentally safest way possible. And, and yeah, there's just so much business to be had up there. And so, you know, I, I really feel for my Canadian brotherhood up there and hopefully things open up. But speaking of that, I mean, opening up always is interesting because you talk about, I mean, that ties into GDP that ties into, you know, like this whole COVID thing, things have been on lockdown. You guys have been pretty strict. Is there any, like, what do the numbers look like up there with COVID? And I mean, are you guys making the turn or are things still bad or what does that look like right now? I think the last couple of days we've had 300 cases in all of Alberta. Keep in mind, our population is super small and our land size is massive. I think we're the second largest country behind Russia. It's huge where yeah. we have this massive population or we have this massive country and maybe 30 million people. So, and winter's a good time in Canada to be locked down. It's really cold outside. It's not like you're going out and hanging out outside anyway. So <laughs> right, we got lucky. It happened in a good season. We've been very conscious, you know, Canada as a population, we're, you know, fiscally conservative, very socially liberal, and it's good to have that diversity and it's good to be pushed in all these directions. The thing that I've learned through COVID is I am not a virologist. I am not a political correspondent. You know, there's lots of crazy learning experiences through this where I've just scratched my head and said, hey, I got to dig deeper into the data. I really got to understand this foundationally in what the stats that come out of it and where this is going and how it's being projected and trended. So it's, yeah. it's, it's been a learning experience for sure. I love how there's been more epidemiologists and political leaders that have just emerged out of nowhere over the last couple of years. <laughs> it's, you know, it's just that old case of taking a tiny bit of what you know and applying it to a very complex problem just through reading headlines, which, you know, naturally people do, but are you guys so you know, very basic stuff. Like, are you guys able to go to restaurants or what does that look like? It just opened up. So we've, we've, the last couple of weeks, we just were able to go to a restaurant. It's nice to see people. Oh, wow. We still wear masks everywhere. We just opened the library. So I'm really excited to go back and return my books and check out some new ones. My kids <laughs> are really excited about it too. So we're nice. slowly opening up. Our government, thankfully, has given us some benchmarks when our hospital cases get below these thresholds. We open up society. And as we get out of flu season, as we get out of cold season, when people just naturally get more colds and get more cases of the flu. Yeah. I'm optimistic that the summertime, you know, we've got a lot of a lot of pent up party up here in Canada. So hopefully we get the opportunity to let it out. Yeah, no kidding, man. I feel for it. We're fortunate. I don't know whether you say it's fortunate or not, depending on which side of the fence you're on. But old Governor Abbott here in Texas opened things wide up here yesterday, stating that 100% of businesses are allowed to operate at capacity or at full capacity and there's no mask mandate. So, you know, what's funny, because when I talk to some people, I was expecting people to jump for joy and just run out without masks and start licking handrails. But the truth of the matter is people are still pretty conscious of it. Like, you know, and, and I speak mostly with people in oil and gas and, and typically they're quite, you know, conservative in their ways and they're, they like to plant their stake in the ground and folks that I would have thought would have been very supportive of this or, or even saying, yeah, yeah, I think we might be a little gun shy here with the whole thing. And it's still out there. I mean, someone who I work very closely with and, and someone that you actually know just got diagnosed with COVID. And fortunately he's back on the, you know, he's back out of his bed, but you know, people are still getting it. Numbers are looking good, but at the end of the day, I guess what, what I, the point I'm trying to make is demand's going to come back. Energy demand is, is certainly right now it's, it's, you're starting to see consumption numbers go up, which is great. You know, as long as we can control the virus and, and keep people safe, yeah, we need people driving, we need people going out, building things, manufacturing, flying, all that good stuff. And so, you know, going back to, you know, coming out of this thing into 2021 and further down the road here over the next few years, I'm I'm very optimistic on on how things are going to go and yeah, we'll see how things, you know, things shake out. But one thing I wanted to just I mean, going back to the good old days, Chad, where are you from? I didn't I normally open with that, but I was just so excited to hear your take on some other stuff. But <laughs> Take us back to the good old days, man. You're you're from Alberta, but I'll let you kind of speak on that. Where where is it that you grew up? 
I was born in Calgary and one of the few. Not long after that, I got out of here. I moved to a little community called Medicine Hat. I lived on an acreage outside of Medicine Hat, went to a little school, had, had maybe 30 people in my grade. It was awesome. I really enjoyed it. My dad worked at a methanol plant outside of Medicine Hat, worked shift work. So when they shut down the methanol plant, we moved up to Edmonton, which is where a lot of the refineries are here in Alberta. I lived in a place called Sherwood Park. We have Refinery Row. It's, it reminded me a lot of Corpus Christi when I lived down in Houston, all these refineries all over the place. So I've been around oil and gas. When I graduated high school, I was lucky enough to have a few family members in oil and gas, and they put me on a rig. I worked as a roughneck man on a, on a few different rigs, got kicked off a few different rig crews, but... <laughs> Lasted long enough to get into SAIT and, and took my petroleum engineering diploma like you. That's where we met. And, and yeah. like you said, the rig hands always stick together. We had a crew of guys that thought we could teach that drilling class better than than Tony could. And we got rightly schooled. Yep. <laughs> Didn't we? <laughs> well, so, you know, let's stick back to the childhood of the things. I mean, when I met you, you were always going against the grain. You're always speaking your mind. You're always challenging people and, and getting a rise out of everyone. Is that, was that something that you always had? I mean, is that kind of in your DNA? Cause you know, you, you had a lot of people get ticked off at you, but at the end of the day, people still love you for who you are, but it's an interesting character trait and one that I admire because you give zero you know, F's a lot of times. And I love that about you. And so where does that come from? Yeah, I think I've always had a strong opinion. And I'm, I'm from a family, very strong women who have very strong opinions. And I learned that early, if, if you're going to hold an opinion, you got to be funny or run fast, or you're going to get beat up. So <laughs> I enjoy it, though, I think challenging assumptions, but also having, having the ability to listen and change your opinion having the ability to hold conversations, having the ability to go out and meet new people and learn incredible things is such a great skill. And I was lucky to have to have a family that supported that. So, you know, I should really write this down. I don't have a very good memory, but my whole life has kind of been this, this ride where you just, it's a constant, constant learning, constant story, challenging your opinions, challenging assumptions to try to figure out how this all works. And I'm fortunate enough to form some good relationships with people like you that I can call and say, Hey, Justin, I got this crazy idea. Yeah. Tell me what's wrong with it. So, right. So, and I want to touch on that point. You've always been someone who has a ton of ideas and this interesting because a lot of folks who have a ton of ideas, they're challenged. And I would maybe even say this with you. It's like, you have so many ideas, but it's like, how do you actually execute? And so, cause for a long time you had these ideas, but nothing really stuck and you'd kind of move on to the next idea. But at what point did you come up with the idea? You know, what, like the company that you started, like, where did that change come from? Like, okay, I have these ideas, but I actually have to put pen to paper and actually start putting in the, the work to make some of these ideas come to fruition. Great question. You have to learn that. And that's something that, that we learned. I remember vividly when we worked at CES in the very early days, we were working on a project and Tom Simons, the CEO walked past us and he overheard our conversation and I said, Tom, should we be working on this? And he said, does it add value? And then turned around and walked away. And that was just this ethos I had in my head that, you know, all of these things and all of these actions, all of these doing things, does it add value? And then you learn from all these guys on, on you know, things that seem scary, starting a company, doing all the paperwork, raising capital, putting a technology together, coming up with this crazy idea. You just take these little tiny steps. It's like having a baby. No father is prepared to be a dad when they have a baby, but you get one, you get it home and you go, okay, what do we do now? And then slowly that baby trains you. And it's like a business. You found a business, you commit to actually doing it and you, you jump both feet in. There's no going back and your business will train you on how to run a business by going through problems and you can either live them or you can get a really good team of mentors around you where you can say, Hey, this problem's coming. What's the best way to navigate it? How do I get through this? Yep. Give me some guidance because the best part about oil and gas is there's a lot of really experienced people that are super generous with their time and willing to sit down with guys like me and you and share some really good advice and help us grow companies. Yeah, no, that's so true. So let's, I mean, let's touch on that Galatea. It's something that you showed me. I mean, you've been working on this thing for years, but explain, you know, the why and, and how you went from, I mean, cause you'd, you'd work down here in, in Houston for a while. 
you'd worked at different companies, you know, whether it was sales or on the technology side, but how did you ultimately go from, you know, working for someone else to finally deciding, you know what, I'm done with this. I'm taking the risk. I'm taking the plunge and, you know, here we go. Let's, let's try this, this entrepreneur life and see what happens. What, what made you finally decide to do that? Man, it's been super easy. It's been an overnight success. It's just, yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. I've, been, I've been working on this thesis for a long time. And it all really started when I worked at CES and I started looking at these Excel files that we use to capture data in the field. And I went, wow, this data it just lives in these Excel files and we have to do all of this cleaning on it to make it do anything. Like I remember, you know, you and me, we joked when, when Justin and I started at CES, we made maps, offset maps. So <laughs> yeah. when you drill a well, Justin and I would go down to the board, which is which is this place in, in Alberta that stores all of the tower sheets. So a tower sheet is like a daily summary from a, from a drilling rig. And we'd have to go down there and read hours and hours and hours of these tower sheets to figure out what was going on, put that in a map. So as, as operators were going out to drill these wells, they knew when they were going to hit lost circulation or hit any of these drilling problems. Yeah, yeah. So, the whole process of that, you know, we called our company Mapersoft. You remember that, Justin? <laughs> yeah, we did. Yeah, we, and you know, I'll give it up to you. You had the creative mind to think, hey, what if we actually created a business out of making maps for people? And, you know, we did the funny name of Mapersoft. And to this day, we always reference back to it, but <laughs> that's where old Mapersoft came from. I'm so, we should trademark that, I swear. Like, I think one day someone will actually come up with Mapersoft. And, I'm sure Microsoft would probably laugh at us trying to do that, but man, you never know. So it's problems like that, solving them manually and going, hey, there's got to be a better way to do this. When I got, when I actually started running mud and checking it in the field and using that Excel sheet, I said, there's got to be a better way to do this. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was naive enough to think that I could solve it. So I started building a, a better Excel sheet. I started writing some macros. I started bringing it into a database. We started to do all of these cool things and, the value at that time was huge. I was thankful that CES put some money into it, but it really gave me the opportunity to solve problems without risk. I still had a job. They were still paying me. Life was good. I sat in my cube and I, I wrote this you know, Excel spreadsheet with a bunch of macros. I moved to Texas. I learned from guys like Richard Baxter, an incredible amount about data theory and statistics and guys like that were willing to spend time with me and, and show me all these crazy index match formulas and macros that they would write. And then you just compound that until the point where you, you get a problem in front of you where there's a clear job to be done and people are willing to pay you money for it. And it's enough money that you can sustain a business and you've got the technical capabilities and the confidence to actually go out and do it. And that's, that's really the ethos and, and where businesses are made. So I'm lucky that I wandered into that. But like you said, I've been, I've been working on this thesis around waste disposal and logistics since 2015. Yeah, it's been, I mean, years and years in the making. And, you know, my hat's off to you just to continue to push through, and especially, oh, especially since 2015. I mean, you couldn't have picked a worse time to do it. However, on the flip side, it probably was the best time to do it because if you could survive these last few years, I mean, the sky's the limit. And so, but yeah, so what, what is Galatea? I mean, I know you've explained it to me and, and it's a lot of it is, you know, I'm in the upstream world, drilling operations and stuff like that. And I certainly see the value, but explain, you know, what it is to folks that, you know, like walk us through a scope of work. What does it do and, and how does it really add value? That's a great question. When I moved out of Houston, when I left AES, I moved back to Canada and ended up working for a waste disposal company called Nualta. In Canada, we managed $4 billion a year in trucking and disposal of oil field waste. When you're trying to figure out jobs to be done or trying to solve problems, one of the really cool sheets to look at is a lease op. So it's a lease operating statement that shows all the costs that go into a well. And typically one of the largest costs is trucking and disposal, but it doesn't get the scrutiny because it's made up of a whole bunch of couple thousand dollar invoices that just happen throughout drilling, completions, production, rem rec, remediation, reclamation. The whole process generates this waste. In the US, operators spend about $30, $36 billion a year on trucking and disposal. It's one of the biggest it's one of the biggest expenses. And it just doesn't get the scrutiny. When I when I worked for Nualta, I asked clients, hey, why do you send your waste to me? Or why do you send it to this other guy? And I never got a good answer. They would always just say, Well, you're the closest. Or we have a contract. Or I let the guy in the field decide. So 
when I looked at it, I said, wow, there's this huge opportunity to optimize this business. We can take some cool technology from all these other industries, apply it into oil and gas and really save these guys a lot of money, save these operators a lot of money, bring efficiency to the industry, collect some really cool data. Yeah. Hmm. So, and, and what you're doing now is it's on an online platform where people can essentially subscribe to it or? Yeah. So it's, it's online. We've got a mobile app, but the whole premise of it is let's, let's go back to a tank. You and I have a producing well that produces emulsion as water and oil. Eventually we separate that. We've got oil goes to a pipeline and water needs to go to disposal. You've got a few different options. You can use mid streaming. So a pipeline that goes to a disposal well, or you can get a truck to come pick it up and take it somewhere. Now, a few years ago in Texas, there was wait times, there was capacity issues and really intelligent people. The guys at source water, Kelly at B3 created these amazing technologies to give you that 30,000 foot view. Where are these disposal wells? Do they have capacity? Looking at some of the data behind it. We looked at that in Canada and said, you know, we've always had really good data because it's been regulated. What we need to do is look at it on every single load. So instead of looking at this, this macro level in the whole market, when I have a, a truck, when I have a load that needs to go to disposal right now, what's the best option? So that comes with calculating trucking costs, calculating disposal costs, looking for real-time wait times and capacity issues, analyzing the real-time market right now so we can ensure operators get that best deal on every single load. And it's capturing good data along the way. Every load that we generate has 50, 60 data points. Using that data to draw insights about the market and then bringing in cool technology from, from companies like Amazon around scheduling and logistics, solving the vehicle routing problem intelligently. Yep. The amount of money we're able to save clients, it surprises clients and it surprises us as well. This, this industry is managed by pumpers out on these wells calling truck drivers and saying, hey, I have a high level alarm in my tank. My well shut down. You need to come out here right now and get rid of this. Yeah. I mean, and especially the conversation around saving money is, is is just plentiful. But at the end of the day, it's we need to keep doing it. We need to keep pushing the envelope and they're bringing technology into oil and gas is, is how we're going to get there. What's your biggest challenge right now? Like what's your biggest limiter for growth? The biggest limiter for growth, you know, now that we've kind of turned the corner, oil's heading up, it's not returning to negative anytime soon. Knock on wood, let's hope. Yeah. <laughs> the biggest limiter is really articulating our story in the simplest way possible. Whenever we go out, you know, Justin, we spent a lot of time around really incredible salespeople. We got this unique experience to, to found our careers around, you know, the Ken Zingers, Ken Zandies at CES, all the guys that we worked for at FMI. And, and the thing that I took away, all of those lessons was how do I lower the cognitive loads? So when I've got 10 minutes to talk to people, they understand what I do and they can take that away and apply it to their business. Yeah. So the biggest thing that we've been working on is how do we articulate that value or articulate that story, or articulate that job to be done without overwhelming people? Because we, you know, initially we wanted to show them all this complexity and all of these insights and all of our algorithms and that just gets overwhelming. So working on that cognitive load, how can I leave people with a solution that they understand? So what's your focus with regards to marketing and how big big is marketing and branding for you and Galatea? And COVID's totally changed everything. Like if you, if you remember back in 20, you know, the whole time we grew up with CES and AES, the sales process was so much different. I remember going to a boardroom full of people you know, they didn't have anything to hold up, you know, the pieces of paper we were showing these maps. So I'd have to stand there in the background and hold this map up while people would go through it. But that's, <laughs> that doesn't happen anymore. So, so we've been having to adjust our sales process to work with things like Zoom, relying on emails. We send a lot of videos. We communicate through data, interactive reports and insights. So we're really trying to figure it out. The future of sales is going to be much different than yep. it was before. What's your thoughts on, you know, just the marketing piece? Like, do you guys like, so obviously the sales, if you're fortunate enough to get a meeting to be able to provide information, but how do you get even to that point? I mean, are you guys having to shift and, and do digital marketing differently? Are you creating content? Are you like, how are you telling the story? 
We took a different approach. We said, how can I get the data? So a long time ago, you would have to meet with a guy and ask him a bunch of questions to figure out what his problem was and if he had a problem. We try to find data or build data sets or uncover data from different places. Because a lot of this production data is public and SourceWater and B3 have created these businesses on capturing, cleaning, digitizing this data. If we can use that data, we can, we can actually understand and quantify a customer's problem before we ever have a conversation with them. Our companies in the future, digital technology companies, need to really show their ability at understanding data and finding it, cleaning it, extracting it, transforming it, loading it, drawing insights from it, yeah. and using that in our sales process. So when we walk into a client, we're showing them our solution applied to their asset with actual numbers, actual loads where we can say, okay, we looked at the data, we, we used our optimization engine, here's what you did, and here's, here's our optimized solution and what it would have saved you. Yeah, no, that's a fascinating ability to be able to uncover that and present them and say, hey, did you know you're spending X amount on this? And you know, if you can already build a narrative and say, hey, I'm identifying a problem and here's the solution to your problem, why wouldn't you use us or why wouldn't you apply this technology or, you know, whatever that looks like. But it's interesting because down, you know, in Canada, that's, that's obviously important to do because you can access data a lot differently than down here. And so, you know, I'd be curious on your thoughts or even if you've given it thought, I mean, I'm sure there's enough piece of the pie to focus on Canada, but have you ever thought of trying to break into the U S and if so, how would you do that? Yeah, we have conversations with U.S. clients all the time. This is a, a really big problem in the U.S. The root of technology, you need to take this back to the simplest level of communication to get adoption. So our entire app works with text message and email. That's it. You can book a load with a text message. You can send a load with an email. Because these pumpers out in the field, that's the only way they manage. That's the way they manage their workflow right now. So... When you look at technology, I've seen a lot of oil and gas companies come in and say, you know, there's this app or this software, you know, we used to run landmark hydraulics and that took a three week training session to figure out how to use it. Yeah. <laughs> we needed to keep it simple and say, how can we get operators into our technology without disrupting the workflow? Yeah. So instead of texting a truck driver for a load, you text message waste coordinator for a load. We ask you some questions with a bot it requests a load through our application, runs the optimization and fits into your workflow. Right. And I mean, <clears throat> obviously you've had success doing it. Where do you see the future for Galatea? I mean, do you see yourselves getting into other industries or, you know, 10 years from now, assuming you remain on the same trajectory, where does that put you and, and what does that look like? We're hyper-focused on solving a logistics problem. I don't know about your house, but the amount of times the Amazon guy shows up at my house and drops things off is incredible. Yeah. And <laughs> it's free. So they tell me. Right. So my, so my wife tells me. The optimization on their logistics and their supply chain is absolutely incredible. Mm -hmm. If you look in on the other side of the fence in oil and gas, the optimization and intelligence on logistics is worse than terrible. Yeah, yeah. So how can I take solutions? How can I take solvers and algorithms and intelligence from these other industries and apply it into oil and gas? We, you know, there's lots of opportunities to do this in agriculture. There's lots of opportunities to do this really in any B2B business that moves a bunch of product around. We're hyper-focused on really getting really, really good at oil and gas. There's a lot of nuances. We're working on tank intelligence, a lot of cool insights. But yeah, the thing we like most about it is we're solving a logistics problem yeah, that is a problem that a lot of industries face. Yeah, no, I, and I think there's a lot of area for improvement there. I mean, including the company I work with. I mean, we talk about it every day is tracking trucks and making sure, you know, the hours are accurate and, you know, are we getting, you know, the best bang for our buck? And so, yeah, you're in the right space and, and logistics is only is going to become more and more imperative as margins become thinner and thinner. And so, yeah, I just, I can't wait to see, you know, where this ends up and, you know, in five years from now, there's no telling what kind of conversation you, maybe you'll be the Amazon of logistics there. Like, I think that should be the goal. Amazon of oil field logistics. Yeah. The Amazon of oil field logistics. That's it. Maybe even better. Who knows? Let's pivot a little bit. I want to respect your time, but I'll always like to close out with some personal questions and who knows where that takes us. But I mean, Chad, you've always been pretty adventurous. You know, we follow each other on social media just to keep up with family endeavors, but you're a pretty adventurous guy, right? Yep. So when's the first time 
or sorry, when's the last time you tried something for the first time? When's the last time I tried something for the first time? I try to do new things all the time. I, you know, yeah. I don't really get to leave my house much anymore with COVID <laughs> and I've, I've got a laundry list of things to try, but you know, being a dad is kind of the coolest thing and, and getting to experience that with my children and teach them new things. It's incredible. The feedback, the raw, honest feedback you get from your kids. Oh Yeah. <laughs> and, and just seeing your personality come out. So, yeah, no, that's exactly right. So with all you know, you, your dad, husband, you got a uh, filter breeze, like real quick, man, what is filter breeze and how did you get into that? <laughs> Cause it's such a like random, like in your LinkedIn, it's like, Oh, all of a sudden you founded this filter breeze. So when we bought a new house, we were at Costco and my wife said, buy some furnace filters. So I grabbed some, took them in the cart, got home. They were the wrong size. And I went, this is ridiculous. Yeah. I'm never going to remember to do this. I got a lot of stuff going on. So I looked for a delivery service, like a subscription in Canada. I couldn't find one. There was a really amazing one in the US. Mm-hmm. I looked at what they did. I know how to develop websites. And I said, yeah, I'm going to do this in Canada. Let's let's figure it out. And I have always been B2B. I've never been B2C. And the amount that I've learned about sales and marketing, automation from my B2C business has been incredible. It's better than any book I've ever read. I get to test all these different things. Yeah. I still have no idea what I'm doing, but we we figured out and the orders still come in and we've optimized and automated the back end so it all just kind of happens in the background. But, you know, I encourage everybody to have a side hustle because you learn so much about actual business with a side hustle. When we look to hire people at Galatea, we encourage guys with or people with side hustles because it just shows that you have tenacity and you have the ability to start something from nothing and, and figure out all these crazy problems as you go. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's great, man. So you mentioned Amazon and it's funny because, you know, down here, I think 99.9% of people get almost everything from Amazon and my furnace filters are on a subscription base. So I, you know, you set up to subscribe and save and Every three months I get, you know, some new filters and it just makes life so much easier. So hopefully Amazon doesn't wipe out your business, but if they do, it, I'm sure you had a good time, you know, and, and maybe you got the brand recognition and people are going to, you know, fight the monster and say, no, I'm sticking with the local and which, you know, I would certainly do, but it's just cool. Like you said, I think side hustles are important and you get so bogged down and you get tunnel vision when you focus on your, on your career that, you need to diversify just like financially. I mean, you can't put all your eggs in one basket because you get, you know, there's risk involved with that. And the amount you can learn by doing, you know, other things is phenomenal. I know you've read all the business books. It's fun to have a business where you can read a business book and then try it out on. Right. Exactly. That's a really cool idea. Let me try this on my actual business right now and see what happens. Yeah. So it gives you the ability to test a lot of things and come up with all these assumptions and make an insane amount of mistakes. I'll send you some statistics after this podcast about how many of my customers switched to Amazon now that you've let the cat out of the bag. <laughs> <laughs> well, as far as I know, talking to people, Amazon's not quite as big up there. So who knows, you may have some some time left to, to capitalize. But what's something about yourself that not many people know about? You got any, any good hidden secrets that you'd like to unleash the podcast for? Any unique hobbies? Or I mean, I know you got your hands, you're dabbling in all sorts of stuff all the time. But anything else that you got going on that's that's unique? Yeah. You know, when you're running a couple businesses, you've got kids, it's hard to find unique things and, and weird hobbies. I like to explore. I like to adventure. I like to learn. I'm constantly learning all the time. I don't really watch TV or movies. I just, I, I read whether that's online or whether that's, that's books, but I'm big into space. And truthfully, the reason why I'm doing this whole thing at Galatea and Waste Coordinator is so I can buy a ticket to Mars. Cause yeah. <laughs> I think it's just going to be a heck of a, an adventure and it's not going to be a cheap ticket. So <laughs> I'm going to have to work hard for that. So, so that's what you want. The, the goal and aspiration of life is to get to outer space, which I can identify with. I think it's fascinating. And I love Elon Musk's vision and what he does. And I mean, there's a lot of, he's a very controversial fella, you know, but at the end of the day, I think, you know, companies like SpaceX and people that are pushing the limits, I just think it's, it's extremely entertaining and I'm with you, man. I actually, the very first dream that I had 
that I ever remember is I was in a rocket ship going into outer space and I was watching like the stars as we took off into outer space. And ever since then, I'm like, man, I want to go to outer space. I think it'd be a life-changing experience. So I'm with you. If you get a ticket, let me know. And, you know, maybe we can head up there together and wait. You can be my plus one. Yeah. (laughs) Speaking of trips and travel, I want to have a opportunity to ask you some questions. So yeah, let her rip. Justin and I had the opportunity to work offshore so Justin went on a hitch before I went out and we did a little, we had a couple of days in the office in between them and he came back and gave me, gave me some advice on riding the supply boat. Oh yeah. The, the work boat. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember I was wondering, that. Can you share with everybody just some advice on what not to do when you ride a supply boat to an offshore rig? Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you one thing, getting seasick is I would rather get the worst hangover in the world than getting seasick. So yeah, working offshore, was working out of Fushan and I would drive from Houston to to Port Fushan in Louisiana. And then we would take a work boat out to the rig and and back. And so everyone was, I grew up on, you know, on the water on a, just a ski boat. And, you know, like I wasn't scared of water. I love water and whatever. And I was like, ah, oh, you know, seasick's overrated. Like you just power through it. And I remember getting off the rig and making our way back to, to Port Fushan. And it was you know, it was a crazy storm. The boat was delayed because of weather. And they finally said, okay, we've got a window of opportunity. So let's everyone pile on the boat. And it's basically a huge boat with a deck. And then you've got like a living kind of sitting arrangement at the very front of the boat. You know, you can fit probably 30, 40 people in there. I forget exactly, but I mean, it's not comfortable, but at the end of your hitch, you basically just grab your blankets, you lay down across these benches and you sleep for four to six hours, depending on how long the boat ride is. And yeah, I got started getting seasick. And of course, everyone's like, oh, take your drama me, take your drama me. I was like, like, I'm not taking that. Like, I'm not, I'm just going to power through it. I'm not scared of your silly little boat ride. Well, I got so seasick. I started, so I was laying down and, you know, I was just trying to fight through it. And I had my pillow because when you go offshore, or at least I did, I brought my own pillow and pillowcase because the ones you get on a rig are not very comfortable. So anyway, I had my pillowcase and I was like, started getting sick and I didn't want to get up because every time I'd sit up, it'd get worse. And I was just like, and I knew I had like a six hour ride and I was like, this is not going to be good. Like I just felt it coming. And all of a sudden I just decided like, okay, like if I get sick, I got to puke in my pillowcase because I can't, if I stand up, I'm going to puke. Cause there was like, I was sitting at the very front of the boat and all the rig hands and other service hands were all like sprawled out all over the chairs and, you know, on the ground in the bathroom is right before you get out onto the deck. And so for me to get from where I was sitting to the bathroom, I would have had to step over probably 10 or 15 people. And there's no way I wouldn't have gacked all over these people. So I was just, you know, and and then finally I got so bad in the waves. Like it just, it was so bad. Anyway, within like an hour, I was, I was throwing up in my pillowcase and finally I got, I felt like I had enough energy and, and I could kind of hold it together for at least 20 seconds to get up and make my way to the bathroom. And dude, it was just, it was the worst experience of my entire life. And, and to this day, I don't know if it, if it messed up with my, my equilibrium or my ear, but like I'll spin around two times and I'll get dizzy. And so then like for four hours, I had nothing left in my stomach. I was sick the entire time and it was raining and I would go outside on the deck to try and get some fresh air, but I was hanging on for dear life. Cause the boat would, you know, it'd go up slowly. And then all of a sudden it was just slam down and go up again and slam down and Oh, it was, it was such a bad experience. And I took up the bathroom and for probably, you know, like 20 or 30 minutes at a time. Cause I just didn't know what to do with myself. And I was just, at that point, I, I almost jumped off the boat. I was like, I felt so sick. I've never felt like that in my entire life. And then, and then I get to the shore and I had to drive, you know, from Fushan to Houston's probably seven and a half or so hours, you know, maybe eight, depending on traffic. But yeah, after getting seasick like that and then having to drive home, it was terrible. And I felt like I almost felt nauseous for like almost two, like the entire time I was on days off. Like I just didn't feel right. And man, that was a, that was a terrible experience. If you're ever going to go on a boat or fishing or whatever, and you've never been seasick, always have some drama. mean, cause I tell you what, those little pills, you take one of those bad boys and you can handle any boat that's in any seas. I swear to God. Cause the last time, I mean, anytime after that, I would take it and it would be the same type of conditions. And yeah, you could, I mean, I had no issues. I could just sit there and I don't know how someone came up with that type of medicine or whatever, but it's unbelievable. But yeah, getting seasick was terrible experience. Bring your drama mean 
and don't try and be the tough guy because you'll be humbled really quick if you start getting seasick. So yeah, that's my offshore workboat experience. And that's a great lesson. That's how I've learned what not to do from other people. I remember you yes. coming back, telling me the story. I was rolling on the ground, howling, laughing. <laughs> and I got on the supply boat about a week later and took a whole pack of drama. I mean, <laughs> like, I am <laughs> going to avoid this at all costs. I was out for like a week. But when yeah. I came to, I remember the same thing, you know, learning from you and then having to go ride this boat. We had choppy seas. The sea captain came downstairs and said, don't puke in the toilet or you'll knock out your teeth. Uh, so. <laughs> yeah no that's true because you're bouncing around in the bathroom and that's why i just finally went outside and it was raining so anything that would fall into you know everything anything that would get onto the deck it would just get rinsed off so that's a terrible experience man so thanks for bringing that up i'm not even embarrassed about it i think it's funnier than heck but it's just one of those things you know you got to live through it too it's a lesson it's a life lesson right and it's picking up those life lessons from other people and applying them to your life in business and yes. adventure. And I'm very good at learning the hard way. Someone can tell me like, if you put your finger in the socket, you're going to get electrocuted. And I always am the guy to put my finger in the socket. <laughs> I don't know why. It's like, just, pr- I got to prove to myself that this is what I shouldn't be doing. Cause if, if the odds, if there's a, you know, a slight percent odd that I can beat the odds, I'm going to do it. But you know, just one of those things. I'll be beside you, man. Let's give it a go. Right. Right. Man, this has been great. I want to, you know, with the interest of time, certainly want to let everyone get back to it and yourself included. But I do want to take a moment to tell everyone about our upcoming OGGN events. Hey everybody, it's Savannah from OGGN, and here are the events on deck for April 2021. This month we have three events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our events newsletter. We send it out every month and it includes more info about the events I talk about here. We even include events that occur two months ahead of time, so if you're interested in always staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. First up, we have our in-person event, which is the Spring Pitch Party focused on clean tech. It'll be hosted at the Canon on April 6th. Next, we have our two online events, the University of Houston PES Career Fair on April 8th and the CSPG GeoWomen eTalk on April 20th. Other than these events, OGGN may be hosting some more live streams this month, so make sure to check out our Facebook, LinkedIn, or OGGN.com for more information about any of the live streams or events we have coming up. If you have any questions about these events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for April. I hope you guys have a great month and thanks for tuning in. Great. Thank you. And anyone out there in the Houston area interested in playing oil field hockey, come join the Hack and Wet crew for some old timer hockey. We do it every two weeks at Memorial City Mall Ice Rink. Hit me up on LinkedIn for more details. Chad, it's been an absolute pleasure, a good friend, someone that you know I admire and, and, and certainly look up to with everything that you've done. What's the best way for people to reach out or to get to know more about your company? And I'll put the links in the show notes so you don't have to like literally list them out and spell them, but what's the best way to reach out? LinkedIn's the best way to find us on and our company. Myself, please feel free to connect if you're out there and, and wanting to solve really hard problems in the oil and gas space. I've got lots of life lessons and experience I love to share. So Excellent. Well, we'll put the link in the show notes. We'll also put the link for GalateaTech.com in case anyone's interested in checking that out more. But again, the conversations are always pleasurable. Hopefully people found value in this. And at the end of the day, man, it's just been a pleasure to get to know you over the years and look forward to the success that you're about to have throughout the rest of your career. And everyone out there, always remember when the density is up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Thanks, everybody. That came from Chad. Everyone's wondering where that came from. That came from Chad. So thanks, Chad. That's it. Open the choke. Let's go. (laughs) Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Oil & Gas Onshore, a production of Oil & Gas Global Network. For more information, visit OGGN.com.